thought I'd talk about tonight was kindness. And uh, I really decided on that because I wanted to tell you one particular story that someone told me the other day. So I had to figure out a whole talk around <laughs> that particular story. I could just tell you the particular story and tell you the moral. Kind of, I should, you know, like you, you read sometimes in the beginning of a scientific uh, article, they have a little um, abstract in the beginning where it tells you what's going to be in the whole article. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a wonderful Dalai Lama story. I'm going to tell you what uh, Gloria Steinem said at uh, the uh, ITA meeting over the weekend. And uh, I'm going to talk about uh, uh, the kind of uh, moral uh, uh, discussion that I'm having with myself and with the ethics class people about um, uh, how does one determine uh, the limit of one's ethical endeavor. We take care of ourselves so that we are ethical people, but are we morally bound to um, teach ethics, and how bound, and how should we do it? Um, That's almost all of what I'm going to say. Then Jerry came up in, in the break and told about how valuable his metta practice had been. So I want to talk a little bit more about how practice is a kindness to oneself. And uh, then probably the last thing I want to talk about is I want to end up, and all those things come together if I'm lucky, uh, I will have made the point uh, that Kindness is actually a very wise, kind is actually a very wise way to live. And that uh, kindness is really the essence of wisdom. Um, I think we underestimate kindness doesn't really get a lot of airtime. I thought about uh, <laughs> labeling this talk kindness and compassion, because compassion is one of those words that everybody kind of sits up at compassion. Compassion is a spiritual word. It's one of the four Brahma Viharas. You think about, am I developing compassion? That sounds like something really to develop. Whereas kindness, ah, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, if someone had said to me, you should take up this meditation practice, it'll make you more kind, I don't know that I would have been so excited about it. I probably would have said, it's not that I, I I don't respect kindness, but I probably would have said, look, I'm pretty kind. You know, that's really not what I'm looking for in life. I'm looking for wisdom or insight, or I actually was looking for for fearlessness. That's that was what I wanted for myself. I'd say to people, I really I'm frightened, and I want to be a fearless old woman. Uh, so in the meantime, one of the things that happened to me as a result of my practice is I think I'm more kind. And when I ask groups of people, are you more kind? They mostly say yes. Are you more kind? Okay, there you go. Yeah. Uh, I think that the kindness is underrated or under-talked about because it seems a little bit soppy. You know, it's not like a um, a great word. I remember when I was a child, people would talk with great respect about people who were clever, even if they were clever uh, in a kind of nefarious way, if they were clever and they had pulled off some scheme, they would say, so-and-so is very clever, with a lot of respect. And then they'd say, so-and-so, 
He's very kind. It's a little dull, but <laughs> very kind. Or well, she's very kind. Dull, but a saint. <laughs> but dull. Kindness does not carry a lot of energy with it. I, I, I'll show you. Here's a Jataka tale. You tell me if this is if you don't think about this a little bit. Once upon a time in a forest, there was a great being in the form of a woodpecker. So you know that the Jataka tales, the stories of the Buddha in prior incarnations, usually is an animal of some sort that does extraordinary feats. So here he is as a woodpecker. Once upon a time in a forest, there lived a great being in the form of a woodpecker with brilliant feathers of many colors. Not only was this bird unusually beautiful, but he was also unusually kind. He was like a physician to the other animals, keeping watch over them and giving them good advice. So kind was his heart that he could not bring harm to any creature, and thus he lived only on berries and sweet flowers. One day, while he was flying through the darkest part of the woods, he spied a lion rolling on the ground, his mane dirty and tangled, his cries of pain pitiful and sad. O oh, king of beasts, what has happened? If you've been hit by a hunter's arrow, have been wounded by a buffalo's horns, or an elephant's tusks, is there any way I can help? Oh, physician of the forest, oh, beautiful bird, I've got a sharp piece of bone stuck deep in my throat, and I cannot swallow it or throw it up. I'm in terrible agony. Please help me. The clever bird quickly thought of a way to aid the lion. He found a stick just the proper size and told the lion to open his mouth as wide as he could. Then he placed the stick between his top and bottom teeth to keep his jaws apart. Boldly, the physician bird entered the lion's mouth and hopped to the bottom of his throat. With his long, fine beak, he gently worked the bone fragment loose and pulled it free. As he came out of the lion's mouth, he kicked away the stick and the lion's pain was ended. Filled with joy, the lion thanked the woodpecker again and again, and the bird was as happy as the lion, knowing that he had removed the pain of another. The happiness of others brought him great joy, and he cared not whether he was thanked or praised. Sometime later, it happened that the woodpecker had been unable to find food for many days. He ached with hunger, as he flew from branch to branch in search of berries or even sweet leaves. Then the woodpecker spied that very same lion beneath the trees, feasting on an antelope he had hunted down. So hungry was the woodpecker that he wished for a morsel of the lion's meal, but he did not ask for anything. He only landed nearby and watched, hoping the lion would remember him and offer him food. Instead, Indeed, the lion recognized the woodpecker who had saved his life, but being greedy and proud, he did not understand the sweet nature of the woodpecker. Why should I, the mighty lion, bother with you, little bird, he snarled. This food is mine. Is it not enough that you're still alive and after entering the mouth of a lion? I can devour anything I please. Now away with you before I lose all patience and eat you in one bite. The woodpecker soared straight up into the sky, showing the lion the freedom and power of birds and speaking to the lion in the language of wings. 
High in the clouds, he met a sky fairy who had been watching their encounter. Oh, exalted and most beautiful of birds, why do you allow the lion to insult you? Why do you not respond with anger and revenge? You have the power to blind him in a flash with your beak or to swoop down in an instant and pluck the food from his very teeth. Enough of such talk, replied the woodpecker. The way of anger is not for me. I simply help the lion in order to end his pain, not to gain a reward. If he chooses not to be kind in return, then I'll simply leave him alone. I did not help him in order to be thanked, so he does not need to thank me. Why should I care? It is enough that I helped my friend. But great being, why be kind to those who are not kind to you? How can you call that greedy lion your friend? Kindness regards everyone as a friend, even those who do not understand kindness, replied the woodpecker. I count as friends all those I care about. Every animal in this forest is my friend. Whether one animal is kind to me one day or unkind to me another day matters what not. With so many friends, there are always opportunities to bring joy to others. You are a true and constant friend, exclaimed the sky fairy, for your heart never changes no matter how you're treated, how noble you are, a woodpecker, how the animals must admire and love you. If your heart is gentle and true, all beings will gladly trust in you. If you count as friends everyone you meet, your happiness will be complete. Okay, there's the Jataka tale. Now, doesn't it pass your mind a little bit when the lion speaks harshly to him? Don't, don't you have just a little bit in your mind that says, hey, he should say to that lion, look, it was... It was I who helped you out the other day. Would really be sensible if you gave me some of your meat now. I'm hungry. Doesn't it even pass your mind? Don't you feel like a little tension in you when you... I do. I think... <laughs> Didn't you? Yes? No, only I felt it. Yes, you did. You see, that lion should really share his food, shouldn't he? And in case he doesn't recognize that that's the very woodpecker, that very woodpecker should say. Don't you have that feeling? So now we have to talk about the woodpecker is right, of course, but it's hard to get that. There's that notion about only a fool would not speak up and say, hey, you owe me or remember me. So now I get to tell you the Dalai Lama story. This is the whole point. Of a friend of mine visited for the weekend, and um, he told about being at Columbia uh, when the Dalai Lama was given an honorary degree from Columbia University and uh, was also the, the speaker at graduation. So not this year, but in a previous year. And he, we were talking about, the conversation came up because we were talking about how the Dalai Lama, although he certainly is a wonderful scholar and uh, has tremendous breadth of wisdom and depth of experience. Mostly one learns from him just by watching how he is. And we were changing Dalai Lama stories. I told him one, he told me one, I told him one, he told me one. And then he said, well, this, this was the, the graduation story. He said they gave him a uh, mortarboard, a graduation, graduate hat. And he didn't know how to put it on exactly, so he had it on and the tassel was hanging in front. And he kind of 
did it this way a little bit and that way a little bit and the tassel was still hanging in front. And he thought about it for a minute and he giggled a little bit and he moved the tassel. And then he took it off and he said, I can't wear this. (laughs) Then he said, this is the easiest degree I've ever gotten because I didn't have to do anything to get it. And he just said that out of his own spontaneous thought. My friend said he glanced over next to him was the chancellor of the university. And he wondered, my friend, how that went down with the chancellor because Columbia is a very prestigious place and to get a degree there you really have to work very hard to get a degree of any sort. And he had the Dalai Lama and his totally straightforward way. So this is the easiest degree I ever got. I didn't have to do anything to get it. And then he went on to give a talk on kindness. And my friend said that was the best part of all because he gave one of his very simple talks that starts out always with the same line, my religion is kindness. And he said it was so wonderful because here are all these people in this prestigious university all dressed up with caps and gowns and fancy stoles of all those different colors and all these fancy advanced degrees. And here's the Dalai Lama saying, my religion is kindness. And talking about that that's the clearest reflection of wisdom, that it makes the most sense to live that way in the world. And the ways in which that brings happiness to the people who are kind and to the people who are around them. And he said it was just so wonderful to have this whole elegant institution and have somebody talk in such a straightforward way who is so worldwide admired as really being um, a living example of the way that he teaches. So I thought I would ask you, since it's such a simple word, to tell me if you had to define kind, suppose you were teaching English to somebody else and they didn't know the word kind and they read it somewhere and they said, what does kind mean? What would you say? What is kind? Giving. Giving. Thinking of others. Doing to others what you'd like to have them do to you. Doing to others what you'd like to have them do to you. What a good heart. Soft and gentle. <laughs> I'm just going to put them all out, okay? <laughs> we can debate them later. Treating them better than they deserve. That's a very, that's a very, tr- you see the part that, yeah, that, that, the part that everybody does that little rumble about is, you know, if you listen to this woodpecker, Everybody deserves, all the time, regardless. That's a far-out kind of a concept. Everyone deserves just because they're a being. That's, a, that's the ultimate meta-awareness, that, that as soon as we start to say, well, you deserve a little bit more and you deserve more, but you're really a wonderful person, this woodpecker deserves a piece of that lion's meal because he did him a great good turn, if there's such a thing as deserve. Okay, yeah. Manifesting, developing, inner consciousness. Manif- developing your inner consciousness. Live in harmony. Hmm? Live in harmony. Live in harmony. Yes. Caring. Caring. Thoughtful. Thoughtful. Empathic. Empathic. 
compassionate. Accepting without judgment. Accepting without judgment. Very hard, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Remind me to tell you the meta riddle before the evening is out. Yeah. I had the thought that the kinder, the word, is similar to kinder, which is German for children. So it's like oh, there you go. Aha. Uh-huh. Do you hear that? That kinder is, sounds like kinder, which is German uh, and Yiddish for children. So maybe if we behave, if we treat everyone as if they're our children, what else? Doing no harm. Considerate. I looked it up in the dictionary this morning. Sensitive. Kinship. Yeah. Generosity of heart. That's understanding suffering. There's a wonderful line in the Dhammapada where it said, for anyone who has seen the truth, in anyone who has seen the truth, there will never again arise the inclination to quarrel. Isn't that a wonderful line? If you really get it, how much pain there is in the world and how much suffering attendant to that pain, why would you contribute to it extra by quarreling? And anyone who has seen the truth, there will never again arise the inclination to quarrel. You know what I discovered in the dictionary this morning? In addition to all of those words, and everybody's got great words, even the deserve, because I really didn't mean to make anything around that. It's just such an interesting idea to think about uh, the boundless kindness which we give in an unreserved way. The One of the things that really interested me is that the uh, Old English derivative of kind, I learned that this morning, that when it says O-E, it means Old English, and M-E means Middle English. I didn't know all that. I did some really studying this morning. And that the roots of the word mean natural. Isn't that great? That the roots of the word mean natural. That natural behavior is calm behavior, kind behavior. That when the mind is at ease, when the mind is calm, when it's not clouded with the kinds of confusions and tensions and uh, unconscious drives that push us around, that our natural behavior is kind. I visited a teacher in India uh, oh, four or five years ago in the tradition of Ramana Maharshi. And the, one of the very important things that I got from that visit was around a particular discussion where James and I were talking about um, generosity. And we were talking about generosity practice and that Generosity is a big word in the Theravada tradition. We talk a lot about generosity practice and kindness and all the words that everybody has offered, which are forms of giving of oneself, the form of generosity. And uh, Punja said, uh, I don't think there's any such thing as generosity. Kind of caught James and me in in mid-discussion, because here we were talking about it. So there's no such thing as generosity. 
because that sounds like there's someone who is generous to someone else, just as there's someone who's kind to someone else. So really, if you see it, it's the natural order of things. He said, if there's food on the plate in front of you, and you're hungry, and your hand picks up the food and puts it in your mouth, you don't say to yourself, boy, my hand really did a kind and generous thing, (laughs) or I have a kind and generous hand. It's just the normal thing to do. And if there's food in front of you and someone else is hungry, the natural thing is to put food into their mouth. And if someone was your child and you had them and there was food in front of you and they were hungry, you would put the food in their mouth. And somebody said we would realize that everyone was our child and that we would treat everyone in that way. So it's a a lovely idea to think that kindness is the natural behavior. So you think about, if that's so, why do we not behave like that all the time? What happens? Why do we get confused? I want us to think about it in terms of what the prospects are for teaching kindness. I'm involved with some people now who are thinking about the teaching of ethics. I want to invite you again to come on Wednesday morning to the precepts class at 7 o'clock. You don't have to sign up. It's free. It's open. There's no parking problems. So come at 7. Because one of the things that we talk about in that ethics discussion are, are we only bound to think about ourselves in terms of keeping ourselves um, clear about ethics? Or are we uh, bound as people living in a relational community to make some point about ethics and to teach people about them? And if we want to, how should we do that? This is, this is my Gloria Steinem story. Somebody called and said, uh, told me about the uh, uh, transpersonal conference and said that what Gloria Steinem, as one of the keynote speakers, had said about spirituality is that the name of the conference is uh, Spirituality in Everyday Life. She was wanting to make the point that spirituality is everyday life and that it really matters how one manifests, what one does in terms of taking whatever wisdom one has and putting it out in a way that spreads it to other people. I thought I would come and talk about uh, ways in which we could, we could each of us share what did we do today that was a kindness that taught somebody else about kindness in the world. Did we teach, did we teach ethics today? I've been thinking about it a lot because I, I listened to a little bit of a debate on the radio as I drove down from Geyserville today in terms of the censorship discussion about uh, free speech discussion. Probably some of you read in the New Yorker this week was a very interesting um, presentation of a discussion between William Bennett, who you probably recognize as the former Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, and a Republican, and a woman named Dolores Tucker, who's the president of the National Black Women's Political Caucus, a Democrat, Uh, both of them 
in concert with each other, talking with the chief executive officers of Time Warner and talking about the corporate responsibility. Is there such a thing as corporate responsibility for teaching morality and teaching ethics? And it's in the current issue of The New Yorker. It's a very compelling article. And it's one that I'm thinking about a lot because it's one that's, that's pushing me a little bit. Uh, I'm beginning to worry about, I remember when I was younger and people said, watch when you get old, you're going to get much more conservative than you are now. <laughs> and uh, I'm alarmed that that might be happening to me. Uh, I mean, I, who formerly had a subscription to Ramparts magazine, am now reading William Bennett and <laughs> and agreeing with him. So uh, then I wondered if people would take away my liberal status and they'd say, can you still say that you have liberal politics? I said, well, I don't know if they're so liberal as they used to be. Maybe I won't call myself that. Maybe I'll say I have the politics of sharing. I, I, I just as well call my kind of politics the politics of sharing. Liberal is funny. and it's, it's an odd word. Anyway, that's what I've been thinking about. I've been thinking about it all day today, about what's our responsibility as members of a community in terms of speaking out, in terms of um, having some voice in the kind of society around us, and at the same time being really aware of... Uh, my um, my dedication to uh, freedom of speech and freedom to different opinions. I've been thinking about that. I think it's a very complex ethical question. So I don't know the answer to that. I tell it to you be not because I know the answer, but because it's an ethical thing that I'm thinking about. The same time that I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking about how do we teach ethics to other people anyway. Uh, I'm been um, I've been asked to join a group of people who are thinking, kind of thinking about or talking about whether people become moral and sharing and ethical uh, through transformative meditative experiences or whether they become moral or ethical by teaching them, these are the guidelines for morals and ethics. You're probably ahead of me. You're probably thinking both, both. Are you thinking both, yeah. both? <laughs> I'm thinking both, both. Um, because it's a very complicated problem. It goes back to the notion of if, you, if we meditated enough to have some direct awareness of the fact that we are all kin to each other, and that it makes sense to treat people with kindness, just as if we wouldn't hurt ourselves, we really wouldn't hurt anybody else because they kin. If we had that as a direct meditative awareness, the awareness that we really are all connected to each other, it is one of the three awarenesses of contemplative practice, of Buddhist practice, of all contemplative practice, the awareness that all of beingness is connected to each other. Everything has something to do with sustaining everything else. Everything that's manifest is dependent and intertwined with everything else that's manifest. 
There are ways in meditative practice that people really experience that quite directly, not hear about that. So here are some spiritual teachers who say, let's not teach laws because they don't seem to be working very well. Let's not teach rules of behavior. Let's teach people how to meditate. And when they have this direct awareness of their relationship to others, they'll spontaneously behave in that sharing way. Besides, when they meditate and they see quite profoundly the truth of how things are and they feel more at ease in their heart and in their life and in their being, then they'll be kinder because their minds won't be so clouded. So let's not teach the rules because people will fool around with the rules. Let's just teach meditation. Then there's a whole bunch of other people who say, but you need somewhere to start because who will give guidelines at all? And there are so many possibilities, uh, the mind being, uh, when it's not clear, so uh, liable to respond uh, to the various unconscious drives that come and go in it in ways that are unwise. Maybe we need some rules to begin with to help to settle down the mind. Maybe the rules would be a good meditation to begin with. Did you ever think of that as the rules, as a meditation? I think about that. We talk about it once a month at the ethics <laughs> class. When I began my spiritual practice and people talked about the three parts of Dharma, they would talk about morality and meditative practice and wisdom. The morality part got brushed over in a big hurry. I think it was because the 60, it was the 60s and the 70s and morality was not a particularly in thing to talk about at that time. Uh, and uh, when people talked about precepts at all, about the precepts for behavior, they talked about them in terms of it would be helpful to do the precepts because then when you meditate, you'll be a good meditator. So it wasn't in terms of it's helpful to do the precepts because it's a wise thing to do or it's helpful to do the precepts as a practice. It was really, in a sense, narcissistically oriented. It would be helpful to do the precepts because if you don't do the precepts, then your mind is likely to be stirred up with guilt or remorse or all kinds of feelings which will then make it hard for you to meditate. So if you want to be a good meditator, probably be good to behave in these ways. I think over the years we've changed and the pendulum has come back to talking not only about there's a great deal of wisdom in, saying, in seeing that when there's any amount of understanding, wise behavior is a reflection of it, and also to be able to say that morality practice is a whole practice in and of itself, that people don't have to sit, they don't have to necessarily have some depth academic understanding of, uh, of Buddhist dogma or of even um, an ability to articulate spiritual truths that just the decision to lead 
a life according to particular wise principles or wholesome principles would itself be a meditation. Can you see that as a meditation? Suppose I decided, I hope I've decided, to make right speech one of my practices. If I do that, then I need to decide that, since I speak so much, that I need to wa- I need to be alert all the time to whether or not to what is the intention of the heart motivating anything that I say. Do you think about that during the day? Do you ever have the feeling when you just said something? Uh oh, I wish I hadn't said that. Never. When you have that, do you fix it up right away? Do you say to whoever it is you said that to? Uh oh, I wish I hadn't said that. That's a great practice. I really want to recommend it to you. Normally we feel, oh dear, I'm so humiliated, I said that, and then we just kind of feel badly about it till we forget about it. I'd like to suggest, because I've tried it out a lot, that it's perfectly possible to say, whoops, I take that back. I didn't mean to say that. Or, I guess I meant to say it, but I'm sorry I meant to say it, because I see it was... (laughs) I see it was motivated by something other than a wholesome motivation. I see that a lot in my relationship with my family, especially with my husband. I think people see that most with the people that they live with in the most close association. I actually discovered that particular uh, intention to motivation truth uh, after some period of sitting and I'd come home And those of you who have done a retreat know that in retreat practice, one of the um, practice disciplines is not talking. So you get out of the habit of talking in the kind of reflexive way that we do. And you think all the time. So you kind of make a mental response to what's going on. And mental commentary happens, but it doesn't come out the mouth. It just happens internally. And my own experience is that when I come back from retreat, there's usually some period of time before my speech is back up to its reflexive speed. Probably all the better if it never came back up to reflexive (laughs) speed. But that one of the things that I was then able to discover is perhaps my husband would say something and I would respond, but there'd be a little pause as I formulated the response. And then he'd say something else and I'd again formulate a response. And I noticed that in the moment of about to do the response, I could see that the intention that was behind that response was um, multi-layered, that maybe 80% of it was the answer to the question. And 10% was, I said it cleverly, that's okay, because I have a good verbal facility, and I'm, sometimes I'm entertaining with it. That's okay. Verbal facility, a little bit clever response, that's okay. Maybe 10% was in some way sticking it to him for <laughs> something that I was annoyed about or getting back at him for some imagined slight or some real slight. It's a particular <laughs> trick that uh, people with verbal nuance get to do. Those people who just laughed are probably the people with the verbal (laughs) nuance who know that they do it. But I felt bad when I noticed that I was doing it. 
so I've made a decision to try not to do it. But that's a tremendous practice. You make a decision to try to do that because you have to be alert all the time and you have to be concentrated and you have to have a fair degree of attention. So it's a really a terrific mindfulness practice, quite without a zafu ever. So this is just really a, a, a little bit of a discussion about morality practice as a whole practice without necessarily sitting on a zafu. And there was a time when we taught morality practice and we called it something, we'd say this is morality practice and this uh, middle part of practice, this is contemplative practice or this is meditative practice. And I want to say I think that morality practice is also meditative practice. If you have to pay very good attention, if you're going to do it, I think it might even be harder than Zafu practice. Because in Zafu you can hang out and could have all kinds of intentions and all kinds of thoughts. But morality practice, you really need to be awake for it. I really just wanted to talk a little bit about kindness practice, both as a reflection of wisdom and as a practice to bring happiness. In the end of the uh, precepts, which we recite and think about on Wednesdays, there's a line that people often don't know about. The precepts you probably know. I undertake the precepts to abstain from harming living beings. It's a great deal to talk about about that because it's all questions of ethics about what exactly does that mean, harming living beings? What does it mean about, does it, mean, does it have dietary implications? Does it have um, implication? Does it have abortion implications or contraception implications or euthanasia implications? It does. And that's what we talk about. Not a view, but we share all of our views about that. Does it have implications in terms of what William Bennett and Dolores Tucker were talking about in Time Warner? If we have a sense that there is behavior happening that might be harming to living beings, are we obliged to speak up about it? To whom should we speak? Um, What does that mean in terms of freedom of speech? Ethics is so complicated. Talk about, I undertake the precept to abstain from taking that which is not given. That's a very complicated precept as well because nobody, I, I, we always start from the assumption that nobody breaks a law, steals, or takes something that belongs to somebody else that's a material thing. But we talk a lot about how with verbal nuance we can sometimes exploit things. One of the things that I've tried to be very careful with is uh, reminding people about the Thousand Buddhas Sangha and uh, hoping that people will decide to uh, join that. Almost 300 people have joined, 295 at last count. People have decided to join the Sangha of a Thousand Buddhas, which means making a commitment that over the next three years people will donate $30 a month, about a dollar a day, and over three years have donated a total of $1,000 to the building fund for the new meditation hall. And um, I'm excited that 295 people have joined. I'm surprised that 
2,095 people haven't joined. Seems like a great idea. And I'm always sensitive about reminding people because, again, I know I have a certain degree of verbal nuance and I know people like me a lot. And I don't want anybody to join the Thousand Buddhas because they like me. I want them to join it because it's a good idea. So I'm really sensitive about watching how I put that out so that it's not exploitive in some way. Uh, when I talk to groups about it, and I can usually fire up a lot of interest and enthusiasm for it, I, uh, I think I'm the dismay of the fundraiser here because I do what is absolutely incorrect in fundraising circles when people say, I'll have one of those envelopes, which you can get, they're in the back, those thousand Buddha envelopes. I tell them, don't sign up now, take the envelope home, think about it for a week. That's absolutely what you're not supposed to do if you're a fundraiser, you say, sign right here. And uh, it's tremendously karmically important for me to do that in that way. I do hope you'll think about it. And I hope you'll take it home and think about it for a while. I undertake the precept to abstain from incorrect speech means what I've just been saying, to be aware that the power of speech is enormous and that we can be both abusive or exploitive. And we can do it in a really sneaky way. We can certainly do it in a way that's obvious. We can do it in a in a way that kind of slips in under the radar and uh, really is a tremendous practice to be attentive to. And to take the precept to abstain from incorrect sexuality means the same. It means to not express one's sexuality in a way that's either abusive or exploitive. And it's easy to think of ways that one could be either abusive or exploitive. And the fifth precept is I undertake the precept to keep my mind clear, to abstain from taking into myself anything that confuses the mind. Normally, that fifth precept is translated as intoxicants that cloud the mind, and there are in the literature whole treatises on what's an intoxicant. And in in the... Um, Traditional texts, the intoxicant is always alcohol, and uh, there's a, I, there, there really are little tractates on when has a pear fermented enough to have an alcohol level high enough to be counted as an intoxicant. I think that's a very narrow understanding of mind clouding, <laughs> and I thought of it today again in because I'm. And this is an ongoing, this is work in progress, you can hear, about ethics and um, taking a stand about what's in the greater moral good or in the public good. I was in my gym today running on the treadmill. And the treadmills in the gym where I run are all set up so that they're facing two giant TV screens. And with my Walkman, I can plug into either of those. And uh, or I could listen to a tape of my own. So here was my dilemma. On <laughs> CNN, there was 
there was inside politics, and then there was a continuation of the courtroom story. It's particularly sad today because it's a year since the day of that event. On the other channel was um, an MTV, either MTV or another similar channel. So while I was watching the news on CNN, a lot, just images of erotica were happening on large-scale TV, large-sized TV over there. And it's really, I don't want to sound, again, I'm going to give myself away as being very old, and it's not that erotica is not acceptable to me, but I, I'm not sure about public erotica. I thought about children in that gym. Meantime, here I am, here those images are happening, and CNN is happening. I thought, well, I could just push the button on this and listen to my tape. My tape was a chant tape. So it's actually quite a holy tape. But then I didn't feel good about listening to the holy tape and watching the images <laughs> on the TV. Nor could I close my eyes without jeopardizing myself running on the treadmill with closed eyes. So it's sort of a late 20th century ethical dilemma in the gym. <laughs> So if I had really, if I, if I had come to talk to you tomorrow night, maybe I would have at that point moved further along. It wouldn't be a work in progress. It would have an answer to it. But I put it out to you because one of the things that really is important to me about ethics thinking is that it should be a work in progress. I really, for me at least, find it much more satisfactory not to have an answer. I mean, if, suppose someone came along and said, this is it, can't go to the gym. Or, this is it, you have to run with your eyes closed, or do other machines, or do the rowing machine, or some other answer, or gave me an answer. That would not be as valuable to me as having to decide for myself, because then when I, it's not just my dilemma of what I should look at, but if I have a feeling that that's not the most healthy thing for to support in the culture. Perhaps I should stop by in the office in that gym on the way out and say, look, I belong to this gym. I've belonged here for a few years. I wonder if there's something else that could play on the video. I wonder if you could put out a questionnaire. I wonder, hey, this is a good idea. I didn't think of this this afternoon. Why don't we put a questionnaire in the gym and ask people, what would you like to see on the TV? I mean, Maybe we could watch good movies on the TV. That's a great answer, see? I had enough time to figure out the answer. You have a better answer than that? I just... I just no, TV. no TV in the gym. You may not be happy with the answer. Huh? All of that becomes now another, another possibility in my ethical dilemma. I could. Or I could think to myself, you know, there are a lot of good folks in those gym, in that gym, running on the treadmill. Maybe if I go talk to the management of the gym and they change what's on the TV, maybe all those folks will have um, some change in mind state when they leave the gym. See, one of the questions that I want to think about is not only what should I do for my own mind state, but how... Am I making my, my own wisdom about what makes a happy mind manifest in the world? What's my responsibility? 
and how shall I do it? It's a complicated question. At the end of the precept recitation, when one does them, one makes those five dedications. I dedicate myself to not abusing, not exploiting, in general and specifically with speech and with sexuality. And I make the dedication to not confuse myself. That's what I think that that intoxicants means. Not to take into myself something that confuses me so that I can make good judgments. At the end of that recitation, it says, may these precepts be a cause for happiness. It's really a wonderful idea. Doesn't takes away the notion that preceptful living or moral living is somehow a difficulty. I remember in my early retreats, uh, one of the things that you do at the beginning of a retreat is uh, everyone chants the precepts. And there was a kind of a notion of now we'll take the precepts as if, okay, now we're going to really yoke ourselves in. Like we're now going to do something that we don't normally do. That we're taking on something especially hard. We're now going to take the precepts. And that at the end of the retreat we'll be released from the precepts and who knows what. You know, that, that it's not... It, I love the idea that preceptful living, if we are wise enough to choose to do it, is a happy way to be. Doesn't that make a lot of sense? I was going to read you another Jataka tale, just so we wouldn't have only one. Would you like to have another Jataka tale? Take about three minutes. Worth it. This is my favorite one. It's another form of kindness. This is kindness in the form of patience. In this one, the, the uh, bodhisattva is a great buffalo. Once upon a time, deep within a jungle, there lived a great being in the form of a wild buffalo. On the outside, he seemed stern and frightening, but on the inside, his heart was gentle and kind. In the same jungle lived a mischievous monkey who insulted and annoyed the buffalo every day. When the buffalo was about to feed on the grass, Monkey would play a trick, and he'd say, Try and eat, try and eat, even though I stand under your feet. When buffalo went to bathe in the water, Monkey would play a different trick. Don't slip and fall, don't slip and fall, even though you can't see it all. He said, Monkey's got his hands over the buffalo's eyes. When Buffalo wished to take a nap, Monkey would play yet another trick. Give me a ride, give me a ride, or my stick will beat your hide. There he is, standing on the Buffalo and annoying him with a stick. But Buffalo patiently endured all the tricks. He never hurt the little monkey or even frightened him away and continued to treat him as a friend. One day, there's that forest bright back again. One day, a magical forest sprite caught sight of the monkey tricks and became very angry. Oh, great buffalo, he said, why do you put up with this foolish monkey? What could you be thinking? Are you afraid of him? Have you become his slave? Does he know some terrible secret about you that he's threatening to tell? (laughs) The strongest lions fear your wrath. Even elephants step out of your path. With those hoofs of yours, you could crush him to bits. With those horns of yours, you could shred him in strips. 
Oh, forest bright, a buffalo replied. Anger never leads to happiness. Monkey does me a great favor by giving me an opportunity to defeat my anger and to practice patience. By learning patience, I protect myself as well as others. How good I feel inside when I am patient. Anger does not upset my heart and I do not have to hurt someone and feel bad later. But the forest bride could not understand. This rascal's tricks will only worsen if you don't treat it, teach him a lesson. It's better to be patient, my friend, for this may awaken his inner feelings. Though Monkey is mischievous, like all creatures, he possesses a true heart. The forest sprite was amazed, for he had not figured out how to handle a tease. Even though he knew all manner of magic and spells, patience, what a magical charm. Could you teach me how to do it? Show me quickly. Show me now. <laughs> Show me right now. I want to know how to use it. <laughs> to practice patience, replied Buffalo, you need a real rascal to help you. It's no use practicing on gentle and kind creatures, for they don't require any patience. What you need is a good monkey. <laughs> Would you like to use mine? <laughs> Monkey, that tease? If he tried his silly tricks on me, I'd show him some of mine. My friend, you see how hard patience is to practice? But you must keep trying, for indeed it's a magic charm. I learned to be patient by thinking about Monkey. His teasing will surely get him into trouble. Sooner or later, he'll play a trick on some quick-tempered creature who will give him a bad scare or even a beating. Poor Monkey. Then I thought about how lonely he must be. None of the animals want to be around him. Everyone wishes he'd go away. Poor monkey. And then I thought about how confused he is. He relies on bad qualities instead of good ones, turning all his cleverness and energy into mean tricks. I feel so sorry for monkey. I don't wish to cause him any more unhappiness. If I think it through the way you do, then maybe I'll learn to practice patience too the forest bride said, and then he flew off to practice the wonderful new charm called patience. Just then, Monkey, who had been hiding in the trees, listening to every word, came up to Buffalo. I didn't know I had such a good friend, he said. I didn't think I had any friends at all. How kind and strong you are to be patient with a monkey like me. Please forgive me for teasing and playing mean trip tricks and let me be your friend. If you think of all beings as your friends, tricks and teasing can do you no harm, for your heart is protected by patience, and patience works like a charm. <laughs> that a good story? So it's fun to be here. I love to be here with you. I'll see you whenever I see you again, unless I see you on day after tomorrow in the morning. Let's sit for one minute together.
The meta riddle, which I didn't tell you, has the answer that we should so love all beings that they're really indistinguishable to us and that everyone is as dear to us as everyone else so that we treat everyone with equal kindness and consideration. Part of the Metta Sutta says, just as a mother would give her life to to protect her one and only child, just so should we towards all beings boundlessly open our hearts in all directions. May all beings be peaceful, may all beings be happy. Thank you. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at S.R. Munite on June 12, 1995. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed 